0: series go behind the scenes of some of the world's most innovative and vital live experiences, from Broadway theatre to international boxing, virtual reality to retail. My name is Howard Gray, I'm founder of H-Bureau, and your host. On the guest list today is Adam Morley. Adam is founder of BrandSmiths, a London-based law firm specialising in media, technology and sports. He's also a prominent boxing manager, working with the British heavyweight David Haye, and his haymaker ringside promotion company. Listen on for Adam's hugely valuable insights into how the boxing business differs from other sports, what goes into delivering an international pay-per-view fight, and how talent, managers, and agents can best forge brand partnerships in 2018. Enjoy.
1: So I'm Adam Morley, I'm a lawyer, and I run my own law firm, which I set up three years ago, called BrandSmiths, which has about 16 lawyers working from it. We specialize in intellectual property and sport. And within sport, I developed another business, which is a boxing management business, which now looks after three boxers who are world champions or potential world champions. Um, I started out in 1999. I was a trainee in a law firm. I'd gone through university and law school. And I really just wanted to be a lawyer, um, trained for two years at a city firm, which was pretty stuffy, um, lots of suits, lots of Mr. This and Mr. That um, some of the some of the law firm partners in classic style actually had no idea what my name was. I remember once I was um, sat in my office some of the partners came in, knocked on the door and asked me, said to me, Where, where's this piece of work? And I said, which piece of work? because he'd never spoken to me before. He said, this piece of work, don't know what you're talking about. He said, where is it? I said, I'm really sorry. I don't want to be disrespectful, but I don't know what you're talking about. And he looked at the name on the door and saw it was someone else. He said, wrong person. And basically, I had dark hair and this other person had dark hair. So it wasn't really uh, an environment where everybody really knew your name. But that's where I started off. I then moved to a firm called is a great firm where I was for 10 years. And I became a partner there specialising in intellectual property and sport and one of the really good things about being a lawyer is that you get to see a lot of different people's businesses and you get to see how they operate and ultimately you're a problem solver that is that's your number one capacity people come to you with problems either they've got a piece of litigation so someone's done something wrong to them or is accusing them of doing something wrong or they need a deal doing and you've got to help that deal over the line so in doing that you become someone who's pretty well-versed in acting in pressure situations. You've got to be quite adaptable to different people. And I, at the time, was doing a lot of work in two sports, boxing and football. And I've worked in boxing right since my earliest law firms because boxing was seen as a, a, a sport that may or may not pay the bills, may or may not be slightly on the line in terms of whether it was blue chip or not. And I got into that again about 18 years ago 19 years ago and I became a lawyer that just did work in boxing and when I set up Brandsmiths in 2014 I wanted to create a law firm that was really centered on being a meritocracy that was the that was the key for me it had to be a meritocracy Um, the mission statement for the firm is abundance through making law meritocratic and we act for brands and entrepreneurs in the firm and we help them do deals and we help them solve problems. And whilst doing that, I started acting for a lot of sportsmen for sports governing bodies, doing those two things, helping them do deals, helping them solve problems. And naturally I started acting for a sportsman, a boxer called David Hay as his lawyer, because there's not actually that many, there's not actually that many boxing lawyers out there. And, um, I'd never worked for David before. He knew I'd done a bit of work for various promoters and I started being his lawyer. And what happened was when I, when I started becoming his lawyer, I was working with his, with David's manager and then David's manager went off the scene uh, and David needed a new manager. But then there's the, the kind of big question in 2016 or 2015 when it was, what kind of manager do you need? And that's really come into 2018 now you know in the football sense when you have an agent that's someone who who kind of blows your nose for you picks up your shopping you want anything they phone you up whereas with David Hay he didn't want that David is one of the most well-known heavyweight boxers in the UK he's extremely intelligent he's thoughtful he can do all that stuff himself and he does not want to pay someone a percentage of his income to do tasks that he can do himself And the more sophisticated a sportsman you are, the more you will pay people set amounts of money to do certain things. So David has a staff of probably, I don't know, six or seven. And maybe me and one other on a percentage and everyone else does a job and gets paid for it quite rightly. Um, In boxing and in other sports, there had been a tradition that a manager was paid 20 percent, a trainer was paid 10 percent. But I think those figures are really quite applicable to someone who's starting out. But with David, he was very, very sophisticated, had already won world titles at two different weights and was looking for someone to help him with the finer points of boxing regulation and someone who was able to um, help manage him commercially and get him the fights he wanted to get to become a world champion again. So that's when I started moving into boxing management. And because I ran my own firm, I could say to David, look, you can pay X thousand pounds a month or I can take a risk with you and I can take a percentage of your income. And we started on a set fee. And then David said, actually, I want you to move on a percentage. So you win, I win. So I said, okay, And since acting for David, I now act for two other boxers. So we have a stable of three and I run that business with another guy called Sam Jones. And. It's a very interesting it's a very interesting business, commercially and sporting-wise, uh, but it's 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 a business where you've got to be in it for the long term. Uh, you're not going to be making any money out of young sports stars in boxing for a good, you know, two to three years. And if you think you are, you're you're in the wrong sport.
0: What were some of the uh, assumptions you had going in as a, as a manager a few years ago when you started working with David? And were they were those assumptions proved true or false?
1: I assumed when I started as a manager that most people would still contact David because he was such a well-known name and wouldn't contact me first. And that assumption's been partially true, partially not true. You know, the people who have known David for years, so the people at, say, Sky Sports or people at certain sponsors will know David Hay and every brand and every TV channel out there wants to deal with someone directly where where people can, they will avoid a manager. However, that's at the start. What then happens is, which was another assumption, which again was partially true. Um, I assume that when there were problems I'd get the call and that's proved to be the case. So when things are going well and people are doing deals, they'll call David directly. But when things are going wrong, or David appears not to understand something, then I get the call. And, And what you learn to develop as a relationship between a manager and an athlete especially an educated athlete like David is perfectly capable of doing stuff on his own is that you need to work that relationship well and work it well to the outside world so that you can get the maximum benefit from it. And it's not, it's not as simple as playing good cop, bad cop. But when you have two people who can negotiate for you, that's better than one. You know, most agents and managers spend the whole time saying, well, this guy won't do this and this guy won't do that. And you need to pay this much money. And then the the natural thing a brand or a TV station or anyone will do is try and undercut you as a manager and go straight to your talent. Now, that might be a bit naughty for someone to do that, but they'll all do it. Now, if that talent says something different, then ultimately your credibility is totally undermined. I mean, I know of um, having done work in football. I know of many occasions where agents have been negotiating with club chief executives asking for a certain salary. And the club chief executive saying, no, I'm not going to pay you that. And then the agent's texting the owner under the table and the owner's agreeing to it. So you're totally getting undercut. And I think it works really well with David because he knows he's intelligent enough to know exactly what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. And he will say um, something that complements that so we can get the best deals, whether that's on TV, whether that's on um, a deal with another box or the right split of the purse, whatever it may be, you've got to be united. And I guess, I never really fully realised that until I got into it.
0: You touched on TV and the kind of deal setups that there are. You've obviously got direct experience setting up some very high-profile fights. Can you talk us through what goes into making an international boxing event happen and, and perhaps where boxing deals differ from others in sports and entertainment?
1: Sure, absolutely. In most most other sports, you have a, you have a rights owner. Um, like in football, you have the Premier League, World Cup, you have FIFA. You have someone who's effectively organising the tournament. Whereas in boxing, you don't. You do have international governing bodies, but they're really just sanctioning bodies who will put a belt on the line. They don't organise the event. So it's, a, it's actually a very peculiar sport in that the events are not organised by any overarching body, which has pluses and minuses. The pluses are it gives gives everybody much more freedom. The minuses are to the public sometimes there's a lack of credibility when – when Liverpool play Chelsea in the FA Cup final, every you know, it's got the authority of, of a competition that's been around for a hundred of years, it's sanctioned by someone, they sort out the venue, they sell the tickets, the teams just turn up, really. Whereas in boxing it's completely different. The promoters take the entirety of the risk. So I'm a manager, I'm not a promoter, and especially in America, those two roles are sharply delineated manager looks after the fighter uh, and the promoter is the ringmaster, uh, is the person organising the whole event who buys in the talent. Um, I have over the years acted for pretty much every major promoter in the UK as a lawyer, so I do understand that, and David himself is a promoter, so I will be David's lawyer for his promotional company. He recently set up a joint venture with Richard Schaefer called um, Haymaker Ringstar, uh, which has got an offering to the UK and America, but going back going back to first principles, the promoter takes the entirety of the risk of the show. they They hire the venue, they hire the talent, they try and get money for TV rights, they try and get money for advertising, they try and make it pay, and they try and make it work. So it's a tough job being a promoter. and when people see promoters like Eddie Hearn making money out of shows, they think it's easy. But it's not easy at all. Traditionally, you know, you, you have to get boxers, you have to pay boxes and pay people uh, and get people to pay to turn up and watch them. That's the model. And if people aren't, if the ticket money is less than the money you're giving boxers, then you're losing money as a promoter. So the developments of the last 20 years, 30 years have been a little bit more of sophistication on the selling of advertising. So, you know, throughout the years. The canvas has always had someone's name on it or the the posts. Um, But the real developments that are to come and have come are in the way in which television pays for the rights. So most boxing that occurs that's not pay-per-view is really funded a lot by the TV stations, especially in England. Um, you, You see any boxing on terrestrial TV, there will be a rights fee paid by the channel for that. And then the TV company makes its money off advertising. Um, occasionally you get something called ad funded programming where a rights owner, someone like Maxi muscle will say, do you know what? I want my brand to be associated with boxing. I want to be associated at the highest level at the event level. Find me a boxing promoter that's going to put on five shows. I'll give you an X million pounds. You can use that to put on the show. So the promoter controls pretty much everything they put on the show. They invite the boxers to come on. They sort out which boxers are going to fight. Then they'll talk to governing bodies and they'll see whether any of those fights can be sanctioned for, say, a world title. That's traditionally how it works. Now, the big money is in pay-per-view boxing. And this is where the crossover really happens. So when uh, David Hay, um, when he fights Tony Bellew, or hopefully he'll fight Anthony Joshua later this year, when he fights in that, what happens is The promoters will get together and it's a bit of a difficult one because David's a promoter himself. But imagine he wasn't. What happens is the promoters get together and they say, right, we're going to sell this many tickets. We'll keep all that money. Um, We're going to sell this much advertising and and we'll get this much from pay-per-view. And instead of paying the boxers a purse, what they do is they say, whatever our net profit is, you'll get X percent of it. And that's the way championship boxers make their money. So you look at Mayweather McGregor, you look at Joshua Parker, all these mega events in boxing. Ultimately, the promoters do a terrific job because at the end of the day, probably in the region of just very broadly, 70% of the profit of that fight will go to the fighters. may not be split equally, but they will get the majority of it. And, and they're taking no financial risk, but they are taking all the risk in that one of them might get one of them might get, you know, seriously injured or killed. So that's why the the talent effectively gets so much money. And there's no other sport like it. I mean you don't see that in football and you certainly don't see it in other sports. The talent gets seventy percent or over of the huge sums of money that are made in pay per view pay per view events.
0: Why is that so prevalent in boxing? I, I can understand in football, soccer, and other team sports, it's hard to spread the purse, but also it doesn't really appear in other individual sports like, like tennis or golf, perhaps. Why do you think that model so unique to boxing?
1: It's because the reason that the boxers take the majority of the money is because of the way the sport has grown up through having no rights owning body. So there are bodies like the British Board of Boxing Control and the WBA and the WBC, but none of them were ever put on a show. So because there isn't a big rights owner to effectively get the top level sponsors and keep all the money, like you think about formula one, you've got FOM, they take all the the top money, they make billions per year and hand it out to the teams. That doesn't exist in boxing. So it's a unique opportunity. So then all the, all the profits are devolved to the promoters. Now, One question might be, how come the promoters give so much of their money to the fighters when the promoters are taking all the risk? And the answer is, I think it's just been a development over the past however many years where the managers for those boxers have realised, hey, you know what? There is no governing body here. I can take my boxer anywhere. This is the main event. You know, Anthony Joshua is the main event. It doesn't matter who his promoter is. It doesn't matter where he fights. You're going to get 80,000 people turning up. And if he has a particular bit of beef with another boxer, the two of them could fight in a car park and and you'd make millions on pay-per-view. So I think the promoters are very, very, you know, boxing is full of very savvy business people. And they've realized that their position and their leverage that actually everyone's paying to watch the two people punch each other. They're taking a great amount of physical risk. Therefore, they should have it. And the reason that doesn't happen in other sports is you have a governing body or not, sorry, not a governing body. You have a rights owner that won't let the players, that won't let the talent take that money, whereas here they have to.
0: A couple of years ago, it seemed that boxing was having a bit of a tough time, both from sporting and commercial perspectives, whilst UFC and MMA appeared to be going from strength to strength. Over the last 12 months, how do you think the boxing industry fared and where do you see the most interesting growth opportunities
1: this year and beyond? The interesting thing about UFC, for example, is it goes against everything I've just been saying about no no rights owner in boxing because UFC is the rights owner. And part of the part of the success of UFC has been down to having a very, very smart rights owner. And what I've just been talking about in respect to boxing, that all the money goes to the fighters and they take 70 percent of the show does not happen in UFC. In UFC, it's like, you know, playing American football for the Dallas Cowboys. You get told exactly how much money you're going to make. And then UFC takes the rest. And as you get a bigger and bigger star, as you get into the Conor McGregor's of this world, then you start to say, "Mm, actually, I'm not on this deal anymore. I want a percentage of what you take. But when you have a rights owner that is well-motivated, They can bring on massive sponsors and can leverage their brand and can leverage their power and their might in a way that effectively quite a disparate set of promoters can't. So that's effectively why um, UFC have been brought in and have been very successful, because they've been able to go to, say, Monster Energy and say, do you want to have 25 fights a year? And within this package, you'll get this fight, this fight and this fight. And brands like Certainty. So that is, you know, it's not going to happen in boxing, but it has happened in a different combat sport, UFC, and it explains their success and incredible rise and success of that sport. That no boxing promoter can deliver that level of certainty for a brand. And Matchroom is probably the biggest promoter in the UK at the moment, moving into the US. Does it well, they can deliver certainty. And so they've got partners like William Hill uh, and others. But still, it's, it's at a much lower level than... A rights owner can deliver partners. You look at the Premier League, you look at the NFL, you look at UFC, those partners know exactly what they're getting. For example, you could be a partner of Matchroom and then Anthony Joshua is going to fight David Hay. That fight does not fall within the deal. And so you could be a, a big partner of a promoter and then when the absolutely number one huge event turns up, you can't be part of that deal. So that really explains a lot of the success of UFC. Um, what do I think is going to happen in 2017, 2018? I think there's going to be some big fights this year, and again there'll be big money made on the pay-per-view side. I think one thing I'm particularly interested in is the return of terrestrial TV and bringing brands back, bring turning boxes into brands and getting them out to the masses so that people get to know them. I think we're going to see that. The other interesting thing, which I think is a trend, which is interesting for the next say one to five years. Is the way people consume sport, and you know, a regular uh, pay-per-view fight probably costs 16.95. It costs maybe 14.95 if you buy it before, or 16.95 in the night, on the night. And I think what we'll see is the Amazons and Netflix of this world get into sports, in particular, and in particular, boxing, and say, right, we're going to get the rights to the next pay-per-view fight. You want to buy it two months in advance? It's going to be 5.95. You want to buy it on the night. It's sixteen ninety five. You want to buy it one hour after. It's two ninety five. And you know, from one of the hardest things about being a promoter, I, I, I've seen, is when you sell TV rights again, you don't have big deals. So you have to sell them from the start in two hundred and twenty countries each time. Sometimes you have some some you know longer deals, but if if uh, a big fight gets made, you have to go and do lots and lots of new deals, and it's painful. And you're negotiating with different people in different territories. If you would be able to, say, sell your rights to Amazon, bang, right at that moment, you're in 200 countries around the world. You can control the pricing and you can share with them on the money. So that, to me, is the future. The Amazons and Netflix of this world coming into sports rights, particularly boxing. I mean, I think you'll see the next Premier League rights. The price will go up again. And I think there'll be competition from Amazon and Facebook for those rights. Um, And certainly something that I'm looking forward to in boxing, the ability for promoters to do big deals with big players to, to make the future uh, much more certain and bank bankable income.
0: Do you think uh, any startups are going to be able to make incursions into this, or is it going to be the, the Amazons or Netflixes that will, will prove to be the winners? And, And as a, as a manager or entrepreneur in this space, would you entertain an offering from a startup, or or do you feel inclined that you'd need to go with one of those existing big players with with that leverage and distribution that they've got?
1: Yeah, look, I think the great thing about boxing is that anything goes because you have promoters and you have have a variety of different promoters and at the moment, there aren't those vested interests. There isn't that Premier League and Sky deal. Um, There is a deal between Matchroom and Sky, but some promoters don't have those bigger deals. So now's a great time for someone to come in and innovate and disrupt. I mean, I personally have been approached by a variety of different tech platforms where people have said, come on us, you know, you've got a new boxer, we'll create a new channel for them and it'll be $1.99 a month and you can go and watch this boxer online. And I've seen that happen a lot and I've, I've believed that someone could get that solution right if you had the biggest, someone who got on Anthony Joshua at a really early age Um, and that you got discounts on his pay-per-view or something going forward, that would be possible. And that for the last two or three years, there have probably been five or six people in the market who have tried to sell a solution there or thereabouts, which is effectively a fan buying into the individual boxer in some way, shape or form. I think that it's a brilliant industry in which to disrupt, because everyone's so money motivated, so money focused. If you come to someone and say, look, do X, Y and Z and you'll make money. There's very few barriers to entry. There's very few um, political deals that have been made in the background that you'll never be able to get near. But truthfully, the future is in the bigger play. The future is in the Amazons and Netflix because of the historic way in which the industries had to go to 200 different countries. Someone who can provide that solution. That's the big problem how do I sell my rights globally through one person? Someone can solve that problem. They're going to win big. And someone who's already got the platform that they can sell to again, it's about adoption of technology. Very, very difficult for someone to have a smaller solution when ultimately the whole thing about pay-per-view is you want to hit as many people as possible. So most people have, you know, a lot of people have got Amazon and Netflix now. And so if one of them comes knocking on your door, that that's very interesting we were at Haymaker we were um someone knocked on our door and they were a terrestrial tv channel one of the biggest but when we spoke to them about you know who they had in their pay-per-view database it was really low and even though they were a massive name it made you really question well do we want to go with them because you're going to be building that platform from scratch one of the best things about sky's pay-per-view platform is it's tried and tested there's a number of people who have already bought on it And, you know, the the majority of people in most industries, yes, they say they want to innovate, but they actually don't want to innovate that much. And so you've got to go in very small steps. So I think that the next play is for innovation to come from an already big established player from a different industry. And my money would be on Amazon, actually.
0: Switching lanes just a little bit. Outside of your work in sports management, you're, of course, a a partner in a rapidly growing law firm and, and a founder. Where do you think your experience in sports has helped inform your work as a lawyer and running a law firm?
1: I think working in sports management really gets you really close to clients. And some of them will phone you up and ask you for your views on the most minor of issues. And others will ask you for more high level views. But being a manager, you have to be able to deal with your clients every wish and, and provide a solution. And I think it helps you as a lawyer get much, much more solution focused. I think as a lawyer, sometimes traditionally you start off and you're trained to be more like a doctor to say to diagnose, you know, listen to the symptoms, diagnose the problem and perhaps suggest a solution. But ultimately, as a lawyer, you're trained to be a little bit higher than that, a little bit kind of nearer to the court. You know, lawyers are known as officers of the court. So you shouldn't be, and, th- and, and this is reflected now in barristers, you shouldn't be too yeah. partial. You should almost try and remain impartial and make suggestions. Whereas in reality, clients want someone more of, you know, what I call the American model of lawyer, someone who's prepared to die for you, someone who will do whatever it takes to win. They'll find a way to win. And that's what you've got to do as a manager. You have to find a way to do whatever that client wants. You have to do whatever it takes to get them in the right frame of mind, to get them perfectly in that zone so they can execute and win. And being a manager is a great le- gives you great lessons to take into a law practice and talk to your clients and just realize, you know, people pay you money as a manager. People pay you big money as a lawyer and they pay you big money because they want a solution. And... I've historically gotten frustrated sometimes with barristers I've worked with or you look at other law firms and you think they're taking the money and they don't care if they win or lose. And that may be known as the traditional viewpoint. And some people may rightly say to me, you know, it's an important thing to maintain a professional distance so that you can give good independent advice and you win some, you lose some. But certainly as a lawyer in a law firm and as a manager, that really doesn't compute for me. You, you have to find a way to achieve the objective. And if it doesn't work, you find another way.
0: Your firm work with companies in a variety of other areas, but particularly media and technology. Um, i was interested to know what the biggest shifts are that you're seeing in the way brands are interacting with media entertainment properties and the, the kind of deals that are being broken now.
1: Probably about 10 years ago, the focus in brand and sponsorship deals was about talent and what that talent was prepared to do for you and how you could activate around the brand partnership. And, you know, pretty much coming to five years ago, how many times the talent would tweet for you, what they'd say about you, pretty much working out that they were a decent fit. But in the old-fashioned way, presumably through market research, finding out who people who liked your brand liked and and marrying those things together. I think I see brand partnerships now as far more value-driven values driven and content driven and a brand brands like one of my clients is is misguided which is a fashion brand they started off wanting to do deals with nicole scherzinger pamela anderson now they look at the market and they think what are our values what do 13 to 20 year old girls really care about and it's about being yourself it's about not being ashamed to be a certain body size and so they want to partner with people who embody those values whether they're well known or not and the biggest shift i've seen is is the concept of celebrity being transferred from someone who is famous for doing a particular thing and so they're celebrated for being excellent at a particular sport discipline acting whatever it may be to reach So a celebrity just being someone with reach, whether that's social reach in terms of Instagram followers, whether that's reach on television. It's just about reach. So it's about the message, the values and reach. So these guys will do campaigns now and they'll be paying a tenth of the price that they would be paying to someone, quote unquote, famous. To someone who's got lots of followers on their YouTube channel, lots of followers on Instagram, and embodies their brand values and who you know people on the street will never have heard of but as long as you can focus on your market sector that's all anybody cares about i mean you look at the rise of someone like zoella who started off life as a beauty blogger i think you really can can understand where the market is moving now she started off someone who would try and make up talk about it teenage girls followed her they liked her So brands started sending her things. They started sending her things to try out. And if she tried it out and used it on her channel, it sold out. And then she realized, and the market pretty much realized, actually, she's controlling distribution here. Whatever she says is good is good. So you then go one stage further, and she brings out her own line because she controls distribution. So suddenly, it doesn't matter if you're L'Oreal or Chanel or whatever. It all goes out the window. People just want to wear whatever she recommends. So she recommends all her own stuff because it's even better, right, than the other people that she could be recommending. And that is a perfect example of how the market has changed. The people who have influence control distribution. And you see a lot of celebrities now investing in, con- investing in businesses. I mean, what better way uh, to endorse a product than to say, I own, I own part of the business? And those deals are just so much more value driven and so much more now about a genuine partnership. I think the public um, don't buy as much as they used to just someone, you know, drinking from a soft drink can and saying, yeah, it makes me feel great, I think. And the public are smart. People are smarter than ever. People know more than they've ever known. And in order to buy into that brand partnership and brand values, they want to see their talent enjoying the product, being part of the product, and that, that product matching the talent's values.
0: So if you uh, put your yourself in the shoes of, of an upcoming manager or, or talent agent operating in this new paradigm, uh, what, what tips would you have for them when it comes to, to engaging with brands and, and brokering commercial deals? Perhaps where do you see them going wrong and, and which strategies do you think are most effective?
1: I think you've got to look at the existing market. You've got to start with the existing market. And you've got to say, right, where do most people in football, uh, boxing, snooker, whatever it may be, uh, music derive their money from and say, OK, this is tried and tested. And it's tried and tested for a reason, because there is money there and there are brands that are that like this. So, so you've got to start with tried and trusted because you've got to respect the market and the development of the market, incredibly sophisticated and it's developed in certain ways for a reason. So you've got to start there and you've got to analyze what the brands go for and why they go for people. So at its most basic using a boxing example um, or a Premier, here's a Premier League football example, gambling brands like shirt deals in the Premier League, especially Chinese ones, because betting on sport in China is prohibited, prohibited to advertise it. So put it on a shirt in the Premier League and everyone in China will see it on the TV. So that's that's something historic from the market that the market's taught you that you must respect. So I think you've got to start there. But once you start there and start ploughing existing furrows, you can say, okay, well, how can we do this a bit differently? And you've got to look at how your talent is different and what different values they represent. And then go to the market and look at what how those brands are positioning themselves differently. And think to yourself, what could we do that's different? How could we really bring bring this brand value and you've got to move on from the traditional instagram post or i like this people are smart to it they're wise to it you've got to go beyond that and look to see what kind of campaigns people are doing and and think how can i create great content for this brand based on my talent you know that's what the brands are looking for terrific content using your talent so if you look around for different brands that share those values that's that's got to be a starting point. And I don't think enough of that's done. I think people stop at stage one and they go, right, I'm acting for a boxer. I need to look for a betting company. I need to look for an energy drink. I need to look for a protein bar. And you've done it because it's tried and trusted. And yeah, you should never throw that out. But you've got to move on from that. You've got to say, actually, these people are role models. They train so hard. Um, Look at their lives. Look at what the sacrifices they have to make. And they can make terrific ambassadors. For certain brands that have never even touched sport before especially not combat sports because they exhibit all these values that brands want to see so for example um female boxers and a brand like misguided would be perfect because they're all about breaking barriers respecting yourself for who you are pushing on not letting anything hold you back you know and there's plenty of other companies that would do that you know the, some of the most sophisticated companies out there are and the people that saw this ages ago are the adidas and nikes of this world who cottoned onto this a long time ago and they do the most impactful campaigns pay the most money um and it's sure. almost reversed there sometimes the brand chooses the athlete and you can be the manager and just be lucky because you've got the best talent but that's what the talent wants they want you going out there i mean one piece of advice i would give to any would-be manager uh, or agent is is your talent will be wanting you to close deals early and, and that's your job. But by the same token, it can be the worst mistake you'll ever make. You, you'll, you'll just be literally selling your shares too early. And if someone is about to become a world champion in two years and you take a three-year deal with a brand, they're paying now X, but they would be paying Y. And when bigger brands come later on, you're doing yourself out of money. So I think you need talent and management to be united in a vision for when you're going to be getting brand partnerships and the brand partnerships you want otherwise you'll sell all your inventory early and when the person becomes able to sell it at a much higher price you won't be able to do it
0: yeah i think that segues really well into something else i I wanted to ask you about um thinking again about a a manager or a talent agent what what tips would you have for them when it comes to identifying and engaging with a with a law firm?
1: I think that lawyers can often look at agents and managers and think, you know what, you're just a manager or agent because you're a friend of the talent or you're his school school friend or whatever. You're not very bright. You're not very smart. But somehow you make 50 times more money than me. And, and lawyers can get not, not necessarily bitter about it, but football is a great example of that. You can have a player transferring from one club to another with a relatively complicated image rights deal. The lawyer will charge £5,000 for probably a load of work and a load of difficult work. The, the manager or agent will charge £5 million. Um, and the lawyer will think, you know, how have I got the wrong side of this? And it can, it can, I'm sure, in certain circumstances, propel the lawyer to want to you know, change his career or find his value. But what it comes down to is, people understanding their value, those managers or agents that are getting $5 million or pounds on a particular transaction have probably worked very, very hard for a very long time and have just particularly worked out how to realize their value, whereas lawyers are more kind of commodity driven and will just be focusing on the hourly rate. So as a manager or as talent, when you look to a law firm, you're thinking, do you know what? I want legal advice. I want really, really good legal advice to help me get this deal done. So there's no there's nothing I've missed. But then secondarily, from every professional you deal with, you want added value. And I think if managers are able to recognize that lawyers are very trusted professionals and may have some very good contacts and those law firms are professional enough and open minded enough to say, actually, we are a business like any other. Um, as long as we're open and honest with our clients, people can make money together. You know, I think law firms are the hub of trusted relationships everywhere. And I think in America, the, the line between lawyer and agent and manager is a lot more blurred than it is here. You know, for some of my clients, I act for a lot of bigger clients and some of them, I don't necessarily publicize the fact that I'm a manager in boxing. And some of them might not be able to not necessarily comprehend, but they wouldn't like it. You know, it's like you wouldn't like your doctor also being a lawyer you're wanting to specialize in one and be really good at that thing but if lawyers are able to see the bigger picture and realize yeah we've got amazing trusted relationships here Um, we should be able to open them up to managers and so the manager goes to the lawyer and says hey can you do this deal for me and the manager and the lawyer could go do you know what i also act for such and such and such and such would you like to talk to them and you can then split the commissions so i think long term money's going to follow the value and the values in the trusted relationships. Uh, And that trusted relationship is the talent and that trusted relationship is the brand. So if you're a lawyer that knows talent and brands, you'll be able to you'll be able to leverage that well. So managers and agents should be looking to deal with lawyers and accountants and other professionals who have great relationships, who can introduce them to lots of people. But the flip side of that is the manager and the agent should be very open to fee sharing and not just think, yeah. Do you know what? I'll give you the business if you charge me a low rate, and you introduce me to people. Because that's just too one-sided, and ultimately it will never work. Do you think
0: that both sides tend to maybe underestimate or or undervalue the other, and that's why these deals don't always tend to work out as effectively as they could?
1: I think both I think both sides do underestimate each other, or or maybe maybe both sides don't respect each other as they should maybe the manager doesn't respect the lawyer enough because they respect them in money terms only. And they probably think, Go, I'm making 5 million. He's making 5,000. You know, I'm the very intelligent businessman. This person's a mug. And maybe the lawyer thinks that person's uneducated, isn't at the same level as my brain. Yes. Somehow they managed to make all this money. Whereas like, so often the truth lies in between and, and actually making money is about realizing where your value is within the chain. And if you can realise that, you're Mino Raiola and you're acting for Paul Pogba, you can realise where your value is in the chain. You can make many, many millions of pounds and that must be respected. The fact that it takes him 10 minutes or the fact that you haven't had to go to school for that thing doesn't mean that he's any less entitled to the money.
0: Most people working in and around media, sports, entertainment and all sorts of, of talent kind of businesses tend to have a story, sometimes a few of a big deal or a future superstar that they missed out on. Has there been a missed opportunity that you now look back wistfully on, the one that got away?
1: When I was a junior lawyer, I was approached by um, I was approached by someone who said to me, "Hey, um, Adam, you're a you're a smart guy. Can you do something for me? I'm working on this." Deal this was back in the day when you had to be a FIFA licensed agent or a lawyer to sign something off, uh sign off a deal. And this was an unlicensed agent, and they were going to transfer their player from one club to another and they were going to receive two million pounds and they said, I'll give you a million pounds and my salary at the time was probably thirty-two thousand pounds a year. They said, I'll give you a million pounds if you sign this off and you say you did it all. Which was untrue. And Uh, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it at the time, maybe because my whole career had been about following rules. And, you know, as a lawyer, you pass your exams, you pass your degree, you pass your law school. You've got to pass your training contract, be a good solicitor, become a partner. It's a constant ladder. And um, I didn't want to mention it to anyone. I didn't even know if it could be done. But it just felt to me that getting a million pounds for one signature just didn't add up. And so I didn't do it. And I know that was like 30 years wages at that time. And I look back on it now and think, I wish I had my own law firm then. (laughs) Um, Because it might have been different. But yeah, I was given, offered a very large sum of money. Um, Was it the right decision or the wrong decision? You know, it was the decision. So therefore it, it was what occurred. And Maybe I'd have followed a different path if I took that million pounds. Maybe there would have been something nefarious behind it. Uh, maybe they were setting me up. Who knows? But I often do look back on that and think, why did I turn that down? <laughs>
0: other, than that, other than that one, um, are, there, are there any deals that you would have really loved to have worked on, whether whether through one of the firms
1: you've you've engaged with or, or just something out in the wider world? I love, I love the way Anthony Joshua's management and promotion have managed him. I think it's phenomenal. I think it's fantastic. It's breathed amazing life into the sport. He came off of 2012 London Olympics, so he had a nice tailwind behind him. But the way in which they held off doing early deals for him and waited, they believed in him, promotionally the way he was managed, and they got him his first title, and they built him into this incredible superstar who makes tens of millions of pounds from brand deals who fills out stadiums fighting nobodies is quite simply incredible. And I have total respect for someone. And it should stand as a case study in how to brand someone and how to promote someone in boxing, because he has never had a difficult fight yet. And that's the genius of it. That's the absolute genius. He's fought Klitschko, uh, who's 40-something, and he beat Klitschko in 11 rounds and actually was rocked and from a very harsh perspective he should have done better in that fight and that's his hardest fight. that's his best performance so in his best performance he should have done better but notwithstanding that the British public and everybody worldwide believe he is the number one boxer in the world he commands the highest brand deals and he can fill out 80,000 at the drop of a hat that is something I wish I was involved in and that is something which should stand as a testament to how you market and promote a boxer.
0: Yeah, I'm also fascinated by by how quickly he's he's risen, and uh, I think we could probably dissect and unpack that for another hour easily. Yeah. Um, but given our time constraints, so there's a there's a couple of things I guess interested to explore a bit more. There, I think one is: are there a couple of touch points you think were the catalyst to to his meteoric rise? And and secondly. Uh, breaking the US, what, what do you think the hurdles are going to be for him and his team when it comes to arriving on a, on a truly global stage?
1: I think one of the issues that Anthony Joshua had in breaking the US was the fact that he had a criminal record and wouldn't be let in. Um, but his immigration lawyers have, have got over that. And again, the way that Anthony's promotional and marketing team have weaved his criminal record into his story is phenomenal. Instead of it being a negative, being a drug dealer or alleged drug dealer, it's a positive. It's look what this guy did from his humble beginnings. Um, I think going, I think the catalyst for Anthony was, well, the thing that started off was 2012. So it's almost, you know, you you can't recreate that. But the thing that his team got absolutely right is there's a boxer called Charles Martin. Who, who won the IBF heavyweight world title um, back in 2015, 2016. And um, he, was, he was asking for a sum of money to fight him. And let's put it this way, he wasn't the best boxer in the world. And most top boxers who would have fought him would have won, but he wanted a large amount of money. At that moment, his promoter invested in him and put the money down, put down big money to get that world title, for Anthony to win that world title. Many promoters would not have had the foresight to do that. They wouldn't have backed their fighter so much because the promoter's got to pay Anthony's fee and pay the opponent. But effectively when that happened, he became a world champion and they utilized it brilliantly because he became a world champion. So from a sporting credibility perspective, massive tick in the box, who did he actually beat? He beat no one, but that message was lost on the public. The primary message was look at this amazing looking guy who's won a gold medal at 2012. He's now world champion. Everybody, that was the thing that did it. And from then, it was it was stratospheric growth. That was the moment. They picked it beautifully. They invested at the exact right time. And, and that's the genius of it. And going forward for Anthony, I think the limitation might be it's actually his boxing skills. When he fights someone who is at the top of their game, I think he will lose. And I think the myth will be busted to some extent. Uh, when he fights someone who's prepared to go toe-to-toe with him um, in press conferences and build up and starts bringing up his criminal past and bringing up the fact that he's not a very nice guy. You'll see the mask slipped a little bit recently with some tweets he's been sending and some Instagram messages he's been sending to girls. When the mask slips, um, I think they're you, know, you will see the real guy. And I think also his management team are thinking about showing another side to him. So I think we're going to see a slightly tougher side to him that might lose him fans, might make him fans, but he's got an incredible base to move from. And I just, I can see him going from strength to strength, but it'll be very interesting to see what happens when he loses a fight uh, or when he gets given a difficult situation that isn't scripted, where someone really gets in his face and says, hey, you're a drug dealer and you sell drugs to kids and you shouldn't even be boxing.
0: Uh, just to wrap up, could you maybe share one of the, the deals or projects you're involved in that you're really excited about for the for the coming year?
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about uh, the latest person, latest boxer I've signed. It's a woman uh, named Raksana Begum. She is a Muslim. She's the only female Muslim world champion uh, of any sport. Uh, she's 33 years old. She was a world champion kickboxer. She started her life Um as a uh, as someone who as a devout Muslim wasn't really supposed to engage in combat sports, she hid it from her parents. She trained as a kickboxer secretly, and then went into an arranged marriage where she wasn't allowed to to practice being a kickboxer. She then got an illness uh, called ME, uh, which almost stopped her training completely. She battled back. Um, she told her parents her secret. Uh, she got over her ME. And she battled to win a world kickboxing championship. Um, She's now moving into boxing. She makes her debut in March. And she's an incredible ambassador for so many brands because she embodies the true brand values of kind of impossible is nothing. Um, You know, believe in yourself. Um, Don't let anyone tell you what to do, because at each point of her life, she's been told you can't do this. And she broke through it. She now has ME. She can only train two hours every three days. But notwithstanding her lack of training, when she gets in the ring, she can focus and um destroy opponents. So I am super excited to be working with her. She is a phenomenal kind of brand ambassador. She's a great athlete and you know, she's someone who everyone can really get behind. And yeah, she's she makes her boxing starts her boxing journey in March and I really hope we can help her become a world champion and bring her message to a wider audience.
0: That was Adam Morley, founding partner at BrandSmiths. Join us next time for another episode of Tickets. You can subscribe via iTunes and Stitcher or listen back on SoundCloud and MixCloud. Tickets is an Bureau production. Find out more at hburo.com. Thanks for listening.